Welcome to the podcast of the universe. Warning. Steve is on his bullshit again. Let's start the show. Welcome back. Happy New Year, all of that. As always, you can find the show on Instagram at this is po2 that's at t-h-i-s-i-s-p-o-t-u what is up with you all what's up with me just getting over a week-long cold that was pretty terrific today the girls are six months january 31st yesterday i had a vasectomy i'm a big baby but it was pretty painless uh, no stitches. I mean, there was an incision, but no stitches. Uh, swelling wasn't bad. Definitely a dull, throbbing pain, but it was manageable. Even with, I did it without meds. I did have a bottle of indica oil at the ready, but I didn't need it. I probably should have used it anyway, just for the good time, but who knows? Maybe the next vasectomy. <laughs> we can try that. So let's do a little housekeeping and We'll get this shit show on the road. We have new countries listening. Four. Four new countries. So that means we are now up to 37 countries. So, the first one, number 34, the Bahamas. So, hello to you all. Egypt. Marhaban. Marhaban. I think that second one was better. I apologize. Number 36 was Trinidad and Tobago. Hello. And 37 is Ukraine, so brevet. Google told me English was the language of the Bahamas and Trinidad and Tobago. If that's wrong, let me know. And if I mispronounced my hellos for Egypt or the Ukraine, by all means, flame me in the comments. Now, let's get into the show. I give hats a lot of shit. Deserved or not. Uh, But the topic for today's show is his idea. And... Between you and I, I thought it was a good one. He didn't write or do anything for the show other than mentioning the topic. And to make it even worse, he's not even here today. He's actually out of the country on vacation with his lady friend in Lithuania. So, as I've stated many times on the show, I love a gimmick. So, this episode includes a gimmick. And it's a lofty goal, but... We'll see if it's fun. It's an experiment. I don't even necessarily expect to work. And I guess today I'm presenting a fun, wacky show where no one is murdered, which isn't a first for this episode, but it's not depressing like some of them can get. So today we're going to try to make a talpa. Depending on your definition, we might not even be calling what we're going to try to do by the correct name. So we are three minutes in and this might already be off the rails. So first, what is a talpa? Well, a talpa is a concept in mysticism and the paranormal of a being or object which is created through spiritual or mental powers. The word was adapted by the 20th century theosophist from the Tibetan word sprulpa, which means emanation or manifestation. Now, if you're like me, you've been creeping message boards and seeing that most talpa hobbyists or creators, they classify a talpa as more of a, an imaginary friend. 
they assign personality traits and develop develop them over time basically now how entertaining would it be for me to sit here and create a totally fake person and include them in the show i mean how compelling could that possibly be so at the end of the show i'm going to lay out my idea for a tulpa for our city saint john before we get there let's get weird and the whole show is going to be weird and again i said this for multiple topics Sometimes I just cover things because I think they're fun or they're weirder out there. doesn't necessarily mean that I subscribe to them. So even though I'm more of a cynical person, I still, I still entertain fanciful ideas, I guess. So we're going to look at some sexier forms of tulpas, if we're using the word right, or at least things that people might be misidentifying as tulpas. Wild stuff like UFOs or Bigfoot, Mothmen, Sea Monsters creepypasta characters, um, out-of-place animal sightings. Um, they could all be forms of tulpas. In a book called Excal Excalibur Briefing, the author Tom Bearden says, the kind of virtual state tulpoil forms into the zeroth big frame, sorry, the zeroth bioframe of a physical reality materialization can result in the materialization of living, breathing, functioning forms. There is essentially no limit on the format that may be obtained. I didn't understand the first part. The second part I understood a little bit more. So let's start looking at UFOs. So in the early 1900s, UFOs were described more like airships resembling Zeppelins. During the First and Second World Wars, UFOs, I guess, had an upgrade. Uh, they were unidentifiable aircrafts and of course those pesky Foo Fighters um, would chase those Axis and Allies planes during the World Wars along with a rocket-shaped craft that then turned into saucers and how we got the saucers was new information for me uh, so I was I had heard the name Kenneth Arnold before but I picked this up in his Wikipedia entry. On June 24, 1947, while flying near Mount Rainer in Washington State, Arnold claimed to have seen nine unusual objects flying in the sky. Arnold also claimed to have seen UFOs on several subse subsequent occasions. Arnold originally described the object's shape as flat like a pie plan, uh, flat like a pie pan, shaped like a pie plate, half-moon-shaped, oval in the front, convex in the rear, uh, something like a pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of convex triangle in the rear, or saucer-like, like a big flat disc, and also described their erratic motion being like fish, oh my god, I'm dying, being like a fish flipping in the sun, or a saucer skipped across the water. From these, the press quickly coined the new term flying saucer, and flying disc to describe such objects, many of which were reported within days after Arnold's sighting. Later, Arnold would add that one of that uh, one of the objects actually resembled a crescent or flying wing. So, the term flying saucer was, in a way, accidentally coined by Arnold's description, and those saucers have since been replaced often with black triangle-shaped UFOs. So some people ask, 
how can the drastic evolution of UFOs be explained? I came across a 1994 Orlando Sentinel article about a man named Don Pricer, I had never heard of before, uh, who had a theory. At the time, in 1994, he had about 600 books on UFOs, and he described himself as a hunter-gatherer of UFO information. He saw himself as a researcher and not necessarily a believer, saying, Belief is right next door to faith. I stay away from belief. After all these years, I still haven't come to any hard, fast conclusions. The probability is very high that there are intelligent life forms on other planets. He says to assume that we're the only ones would be pretty arrogant and pretty stupid. This stuff is so strange that you begin to question your own worldview. Do you really have a grasp on reality, or have you been wearing blinders all these years? Something is happening. The closest I can come to is the Talpoid theory. So Pricer was saying that it could be Carl Jung's idea of a universal memory, more commonly referred to as a collective unconscious. That if Jung was right, the Talpas were being created across... <clears throat> sorry. That if Jung was right, Talpas were being created across the globe. First we saw them in the sky, then they started landing, he said. Abductions followed, and the stories keep getting weirder, even by the standards of ufologists. And just like the evolving variety of UFOs over the years, their passengers or pilots have varied just as much. There's a few examples like everyone's favorite, the greys, little short guys with the big eyes and the almond-shaped head, uh, the Flatwoods monster who was a tall humanoid with a spade-shaped head, little green men, that's pretty self-explanatory, uh, the Nordics, who as the name suggests were tall and blonde, and then of course those pesky reptilians. So could these things be changing via collective unconscious? Or as we become more advanced, do our daydreams and imaginations play a role? Before we finish with the UFO angle, let's tackle the men in black. Now Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones and Johnny Cash were the first men in black I was aware of for years. Eventually I became hip to the fact that there are strange, tall, skinny dudes with poor-fitting clothing who discourage people from sharing any details of recent UFO experiences. They are said to impersonate government officials and have a peculiar way of speaking and try to seize any evidence from the witnesses. In the book The Real Men in Black by author Nick Redfern, he floats the idea that the men in black could possibly be tulpas. Uh, researching the show, I found a 1984 article by a Peter M. Bojowitz. I'm going to pretend that I said that correctly. Uh, he's a professor at humanities at Juilliard. And here are a few snippets from that article. One of the oldest legend proposals of the age of flying saucer concerns the mysterious men in black. The story begins with a Bridgeport, Connecticut factory clerk, Albert Bender. In 1952, Bender lived with his stepfather on the top floor of a house that a local newspaper described as a chamber of horrors. Bender had artificial bats, spiders, rats, shrunken heads in his apartment, pictures of vampires, werewolves, and assorted monsters adorned in his room. Bender was an avid fan of both science fiction and horror films. He had a strong interest in black magic and the occult. These Cold War years after World War II saw the rise of interest not only in flying saucers and their occupants, but also in monsters and the fantastic in general. 
Bender's involvement with the Men in Black took place in 1953, a time when UFO investigation in America lay primarily at the hands of the enthusiastic science fiction fans. Bender sent a letter to a friend who was likewise interested in UFOs, stating that he had learned the origin and the ultimate goal of extraterrestrial visitation of the Earth. Soon after Bender had mailed his letter, three men dressed in black suits approached him. One of the three men carried Bender's letter. The men in black delivered a message to Bender that troubled him profoundly. He immediately discontinued all of his UFO-related activities. Men in black activity flourished with the increased sightings of UFOs during the flap of 1966 and 1967, and numerous UFO researchers claimed men in black experiences, and they were reported to arrive unannounced, sometimes alone in, or in twos, but traditionally in threes, at the homes or places of employment of selected UFO witnesses and investigators or their research assistants, usually before the witness or researcher has reported the UFO experience to anyone, or in the case of some investigators, before they had even undergone a UFO experience of any kind. People have reported that the men in black know more about them than the average stranger could possibly know, and thus the men in black can possess an omniscient air. In the mid-1960s, men in black often identified themselves as military intelligence personnel, usually representing the Air Force. On February 15, 1967, a confidential correspondence from the Pentagon went out to all intelligence command centers, informing them to immediately notify the Office of Special Investigations of persons masquerading as military officers or apprehended intimidating UFO witnesses. Sometimes referred to as strong-arm agents, men in black reportedly appeared during this time like gangsters or international terrorists or spies, often dressed in black clothing that may appear soiled and generally unkempt or unrealistically neat and wrinkle-free. Men in black have on occasion displayed very unusual walking motions, moving about as if their hips were swivel joints, producing a gliding or rocking effect, often with the torso and legs seemingly moving off into opposite directions. Some witnesses have indicated that men in black walk as if intoxicated. They've displayed a penchant for black Cadillacs or dark large sedans. Uh, some display an unusual growth of hair, suggesting that their hair had grown back unevenly after recently been shaved. Witnesses have identified the great seal of United Nations on the lapels of some of them, and they speak very distinctly. Either this distinctness results from their resonant eloquence or from a monotone, sing-song, or whining sound. Facially, men in black are often described as racially ambiguous. And noted UFO investigator and everyone's favorite author of the Mothman Prophecies, John A. Keel, uh, I'm actually reading his book, The Eighth Tower, right now. Anyway, within a year of launching his full-time investigation of UFOs in 1966, Keel found that the phenomenon had zeroed in on him, just as it had done with British newspaper editor Arthur Shuttlewood and so many others. He said, My telephone ran amok first with mysterious strangers calling day and night to deliver bizarre messages from the space people. Then I catapulted into the dreamlike fantasy of demonology. I kept rendezvous with black Cadillacs on Long Island, and when I tried to pursue them, they would disappear impossibly on dead-end roads. Throughout 1967, I was called out in the middle of the night to go on silly wild goose chases to try to effect rescues of troubled contactees. Luminous aerial objects seemed to know where I was going and where I had been. I would check into a motel at 
random, only to find someone had made a reservation in my name and even left a string of nonsense messages for me. I was plagued by impossible coincidences, some of my closest friends in New York, none of whom were conversant with the phenomenon, began to report strange experiences of, of their own poltergeists uh, erupting in their apartments. Ugly smells of hydrogen sulfide haunted them, and one girl suffered an explicable two-hour mental blackout while she was sitting under a hairdryer. More than once I woke up in the middle of the night to find myself unable to move with a dark apparition standing over me. The article goes on to say, Brad Steiger raised the question asking if the men in black and UFOs in general were in some way related to tulpas. Inasmuch as the mind creates the world of appearances, it can create any particular object desired. The process consists of giving palpable being to a, visual, to a visualization, in very much the same manner as an architect gives concrete expression in three dimensions to his abstract concepts, after first having given them expression in the two dimensions of his blueprint. Still from the same article, it says, In Magic and Mystery in Tibet, Alexandra David Neal revealed that she herself had succeeded in creating a tulpa, which after some time became malignant and bold, escaping her control. From this perspective, it can be said that men in black are materialized, tulpoidal forms stabilized by collective fear of Big Brother, of terrorism and violence, of hijackings, and all forms of personal intimidation. Quantum physicist Thomas Bearden has conjectured that the men in black syndrome is based on our own con unconscious tuning, since each of us has some unpleasantness in the unconsciousness. Sometimes the tuned-in men in black can be very nasty indeed. John Keel insists that in psychic phenomena and demonology, we find that seemingly solid objects are materialized and dematerialized or apported. Michael Talbot has pointed out parallels between men in black and an, <clears throat> and an enigmatic group known inside the Eastern mythical tradition as the Brothers of the Shadow. According to Talbot, the Brothers of Shadow are cunning and evil, intent upon keeping any student of the occult from finding out the proverbial answer, and in mystical jargon the answer is the Veil of Isis, uh, and is synonymous with the great secret of Materlink. The Brothers of the Shadow, like the Men in Black, are known for threatening students whenever they get too close to lifting the Veil of Isis. Encounters with the Men in Black often leave witnesses confused and disoriented. Vertigo, nausea, or even amnesia lasting for days are common symptoms. Are the men in black the dark but complementary factor that the modern age must reconcile with for the purpose of psychic wholeness? Historian William Irwin Thompson has argued that in our utopian fantasy of technology, we have created a sinister mirror image of the utopian dweller. In the jungle of Guyana, with Reverend Jim Jones, or in the space colonies of NASA, man will painfully discover that wherever he goes, he brings his evil along with him. The men in black, perhaps, represent human fear, deceit made flesh. And I've read, <clears throat> I've read ideas that basically say that the public shared opinion that the government would want to cover up the existence of UFOs have created bizarre, secretive, human-like tulpas to fill their role in silencing witnesses. So let's look at another character that made news in 2014. 
A man in black of a different sort. Slender Man. Slender Man can be traced back to his creation on the Something Awful forums in 2009 by Victor Surge. He was a very tall and thin humanoid with a blank face. The internet picked up the ball and ran with it. People wrote creepy pasta stories, made videos, they made video games, and in 2014, through, a tw through two 12-year-old Wisconsin girls, they lured a classmate into the woods and stabbed her 19 times. They believed that their sacrifice would allow them to become proxies of Slender Man and that their families would not be killed should they commit the murder. Had they not, they feared that Slender Man would kill their families if they didn't provide him a sacrifice. Uh, fortunately, the victim of the attack survived. Uh, those two girls who committed the act were institutionalized. In an article by Shira Chess, an assistant professor of journalism, she writes, One of the many debates about the origins of Slender Man in online forums, my favorite theory is the Tulpa effect. She says, a tulpa is an esoteric concept, magically created, thought form appropriated from Tibetan traditions by turn-of-the-century Western author Alexander David Neal. The basic premise is that a person can breathe life into imaginary thought form, giving it a will of its own through the right ritual practices, like an imaginary friend brought to life. The tulpa, once created, is no longer controlled by its architect and often invites havoc. In some interpretations of tulpas, it can be created simply from a large enough group of people believing it, believing its existence. The tulpa theory of Slenderman suggests that Slenderman himself has been willed into existence simply because enough people believe in him. The tulpa effect theory works neatly with the existing mythos of Slenderman. It allows for readers to acknowledge that the character was fictionally constructed, yet leaves the possibility for the fact that even with fictional origins, he still might exist in the real world. It's a clever way to make the character both fictional and non-fictional all at once. Yet, if this Slender Man has become a tulpa, it has been willed into existence by the internet. Then it's entirely possible that those creating a moral panic of the Slender Man have created a secondary tulpa. While the original tulpa's fictional character based on the amalgam of existing fictions, works of art, co-created by storytellers and their audiences, the second tulpa is the one that haunts parents, journalists, and pundits. The second Slender Man, Tulpa promises that if your child engages in creative work online, they will somehow be sucked into a world where they cannot tell fiction from reality, where they are bound to commit violent acts against themselves or others. They have brought to life a far more violent version of the Slender Man that is able to seep into reality via cable modem or DSL. The secondary tulpa has been brought to life by a mass media that seems determined to believe in the power of Slenderman more than the many of authors of Slenderman fiction. Without speculating on or blaming mental illness of those accused of Slenderman crimes, I feel confident in saying it was not Slenderman himself that led them to their crimes. In this, it seems possible that the second tulpa of the Slenderman suggested by the news media haunting our children online is the more dangerous tulpa. The real Slenderman, after all, is only a creepy stalker. The news media version of the Slender Man tells parents and teens that any misunderstood teen and any violent act can be blamed on an internet character. So that was that article. I enjoyed that one. Um, <clears throat> now, not all unusual sightings are of aliens, ghosts, or cryptids. Some are a little more mundane, but still head scratchers. As far back as 1899, people in the U.S. were reporting kangaroo sightings. 
That's right, kangaroos. In 1899, a woman in Wisconsin allegedly watched <clears throat> one hop through her neighbor's yard. They initially thought it might have escaped from the circus that was in town, but when they went to that circus, the circus was not traveling with any kangaroos. There were no other kangaroos spotted in that area during that time period. Fast forward to 1907, in Pennsylvania, people reported a kangaroo inhabiting a nearby wooded area. There were several witnesses who couldn't get close enough to it, but their dogs unfortunately did. They were not bitten, but flung with a tremendous force. The locals were terrified to go near the woods at night, and <clears throat> I found this quote in an article from a young local. It said, It ain't that I'm afraid of any wild beast that ever roamed the jungles of Montgomery County, but I certainly do object to the disgrace of being knocked out by the hind legs or tail of a kangaroo, so I guess we fellows won't be doing much sitting up with the girls for some time to come. There had been other kangaroo sightings at they called them phantom kangaroos, and they were even more bizarre. So in 1934, near south of Pittsburgh, Tennessee, an atypical kangaroo, or kangaroo-like beast, was reported by several witnesses over a five-day period and was said to have killed and partially devoured several animals, including ducks, geese, a German shepherd police dog, and other dogs. Witness described the animal as looking like a large kangaroo running and leaping across the field, a search party followed the animal's tracks to a mountainside cave where they stopped. The animal was never found, and national news coverage drew widespread ridicule. There are many more <clears throat> kangaroo sightings than the ones I had covered um, in other parts of the world as well, where kangaroos were reported but not natively found. And it's not always a kangaroo. I just chose kangaroo because it was out of place, so out of place in the U.S. Uh, theories ranged from Escaped exotic pets, escaped zoo animals, mass hysteria, misidentifying animals. Those are all boring and reasonable explanations. <clears throat> and usually my shows aren't, you could say that they're boring, but very rarely are they reasonable. Um, some people suggest that these kangaroo and other non-native animal sightings aren't necessarily real at all, but that they're tellless. Uh, there are many out-of-place big cat sightings, um, but you've probably heard those, uh, so that's why I chose kangaroos. Uh, could people mistake a deer for a kangaroo? Possibly. If someone thinks they see a kangaroo and then starts telling people, could that influence others to see kangaroos? I'll be transparent here and say that in, tw <clears throat> in 2013, a hunter in Oklahoma uploaded a video of a kangaroo running across the farmer's field. And I saw the video, and it's clearly a kangaroo. That one probably escaped from, from someone's house or from a circus. Um, but that's not fun, I guess. But in, in the spirit of uh, transparency, uh, I probably wasn't looking at a tulpa kangaroo run across the field. And the last type of tulpa I'll cover today are ghosts. This is one example of many that I've read or heard about, and I thought it contained all the details we'll need. And again, here's another disclaimer. Most episodes I do covering a topic, and I've kind of said this before, it doesn't mean I subscribe to the idea. Now, I've always enjoyed a good ghost story. Even with my skepticism, they're fun. If something's fun, it's fun. But 
I've never really bought into the usual supernatural explanations for them. And I'd never suggest that people who experience something are making it up. I'm just saying the traditional explanation for ghosts. I've never, I've never gotten behind. But getting back on track, I've wanted to share this fun way uh, to look at alleged hauntings. In the early 1970s, the Toronto Society for um, Psychical Research, or TSPR, as I'll refer to it uh, from now on, they set out to create a ghost. Uh, Dr. Owen of the TSPR assembled a team made up of a uh, former chairperson of Mensa, an industrial designer, an accountant, a housewife, a bookkeeper, a psychologist, and a sociology student. None of these members fancied themselves clairvoyant in any way, or none of them believed they had any special powers. So the first step was they wanted to workshop and create their fake ghost. So here's what they came up for their, for their fake ghost. Philip Ilsford was an aristocratic Englishman living in the middle 1600s at the time of Oliver Cromwell. He had been a supporter of the king and was Catholic. He married to a beautiful but cold and frigid wife, Dorothea, the daughter of a neighboring nobleman. One day when out riding the boundaries of his estates, Philip came across a gypsy in Camden and saw there a beautiful dark-eyed raven-haired gypsy girl, Margot, and he fell instantly in love with her. He brought her back secretly to live in the gatehouse near the stables of Diddington Manor, his family home. For some time, he kept his love nest secret, but eventually Dorothea, realizing he was keeping someone else there, found Margot and accused her of witchcraft and stealing her husband. Philip was too scared of losing his reputation and his possessions to protest at the trial of Margot, and she was convicted of witchcraft and burned at the stake. Philip was subsequently stricken with remorse that he had not tried to defend Margot and used to pace the battlements of Diddington in despair. Finally, one morning, his body was found at the bottom of the battlements, whence he had cast himself in a fit of agony and remorse. One of the members even drew an agreed-upon portrait of Philip. So with his story and appearance locked down, they were ready to try and make contact. In September 1972, the group began their sittings, informal gatherings in which they would discuss Philip and his life, meditate on him, and try to visualize their collective hallucination in more detail. These settings, conducted in a fully lit room, went on for about a year with no real results. Some members of the group occasionally claimed they felt a presence in the room, but there was no result they could consider any type of communication from Philip. Then they decided to try their luck reaching Philip with a classic seance. With the lights down, sitting around a table with pictures of castles and objects from that time period, they reported a breakthrough. Questions were asked of the phony specter, who knocked once for yes and twice for no. He knocked once when they asked if they were speaking to Philip. The sessions took off from there, producing a range of phenomena that could not be explained scientifically. Through the table-wrapping communication, the group was able to learn finer details about Philip's life. He even seemed to exhibit a personality, conveying his likes and his dislikes, his strong views on various subjects, and made plain by the enthusiasm or hesitancy of his knocking. His spirit was also able to move the table, sliding it from side to side, despite the fact that the floor was covered with thick carpeting. 
and at times it would even dance on one leg. That Philip was a creation of the group's collective imagination was evident in his limitations. Although he could accurately answer questions about events and people of his time period, it did not appear to be information that the group was unaware of. In other words, Philip's responses were coming from their subconscious, their own minds. Some members thought they heard whispers in response to questions, but no voice was ever captured on take. tape. <laughs> I'm sorry. Philip's psychokinetic powers, however, were amazing and completely unexplained. If the group asked Philip to dim the lights, they would dim instantly. When asked to restore the lights, he would oblige. The table around which the group sat was almost always the focal point of the peculiar phenomena. After feeling a cool breeze blow across the table, they asked Philip if he could cause it to start and stop at will. He could, and he did. The group noticed that the table itself felt quite different to touch whenever Philip was present, having a subtle electric or alive quality. On a few occasions, a fine mist formed over the center of the table. Most astonishing, the group reported that the table would sometimes be so animated that it would rush over to meet latecomers to the session, or even trap members in the corner of the room. Um, the climax of the experiment was a seance conducted before a live audience of 50 people. The session was also fim filmed as part of a television documentary. Fortunately, Philip was not stage shy and performed above expectations. Besides table wrapping, other noises around the room and making lights blink off and on, the group actually attained full levitation of the table. It rose only a half inch above the floor, but this incredible feat was witnessed by the group and the film crew. Unfortunately, the dim lighting prevented the levitation from being captured on the film. Now, all of this sounds super crazy. And it could obviously be old parlor tricks that people used to use in the early 1900s when they would do seances. But if you go onto YouTube and if you search for the Philip experiment, uh, 1L and Philip. So the Philip experiment, uh, you'll find a video on YouTube. Uh, the channel is called Spirit Seekers, all one word. So despite all of their reported success, they were never able to will Philip into a visual manifestation. The group went on to create additional fake ghosts like Lilith, who was a French-Canadian spy, Sebastian, who was a medieval alchemist, and a man from the future named Axel. Another group in Sydney, Australia had had their hand at, or, sorry, they tried their hand at a make-em-up ghost and created a 14-year-old girl named Skippy who allegedly made knocking and scratching sounds. There have also been reports of urban legends being created in supposed haunted places uh, only for visitors to later on describe them. So what I'm saying is a fake legend would be assigned to an old creepy house or something. And then people would experience or say they had interacted with um, a spirit uh, who has no record of ever existing. And the only records would be from the legends that were told about that person. So, and you could pretty much use this Tulpa theory on anything, whether it's uh, cryptids or ghosts or whatever it is. Um, maybe everyone's a liar. Maybe everyone's a fraud that I've discussed through the, through the show. Maybe there's nothing magical or unusual. And maybe there's no invisible web connecting us together, boosting our collective intent.
I'm probably more in that camp um, as far as the um, collective unconscious, but it would be fun. But who am I to say what's real and what's not? I'd like it to be real. So wouldn't it be fun to try? And this is where I need all of your help. Let's make a tulpa for St. John New Brunswick and see what happens. What I'm proposing is we all imagine strange underwater lights in the St. John Harbor. They are vibrant teal and violet colors, and they can appear from dusk until dawn anywhere in the harbor from, say, the boardwalk, along the harbor passage, all the way up to Reversing Falls. They arrive and leave without notice. There's no set schedule of them. And it isn't clear what the light source is or how deep it is. It doesn't affect wildlife or any watercraft. There is sometimes slight churning or bubbling. It's about 15 feet in size. So maybe every once in a while, think about those teal and violet lights out in the harbor. Maybe I'll make anonymous posts here and there describing a sighting and we can see if it takes on a life of its own. It's not very scientific, but it seems like a fun rumor we could start. Worst case scenario, I've wasted even more of your time, but really, isn't that the show anyway? And I decided on lights because that seems unique and less spooky than a mothman, a bigfoot, a ghost ship, some kind of sea monster, or a kangaroo. So lend me your brain waves, your daydreams, your intentions, and just think about those lights out in the harbor. The teals and the violets, just below the surface, they appear anywhere from dusk all the way until dawn. And who knows, maybe they'll become more po popular than those wild reversing falls that we have. And today is January 31st. I came up with the idea for the lights on January 11th, and I think about them daily. I've not heard anything else yet, so it's not working yet. So maybe I need all of you and your brains to think about it too. And I haven't really thought of a good name for these lights either, so I've just like written down Harbor Lights when, uh, when I came up with the idea. On January the 11th, I just wrote Harbor Lights down. So that's what I'm referring to them as. If you have a better idea, let me know. And I'm not going to suggest that you all lie to people and tell people you saw them. But to get it moving, maybe there's something you can say that's not necessarily a lie. So maybe if you're talking to someone and go, Hey, I heard a wild story the other day. I heard there were lights in the harbor. Yeah, teal and turquoise lights. Weird, right? I didn't see them, but that'd be pretty cool to see. That's pretty That's pretty wild. Something like that. You, you handle that part. But maybe that can get more brains in on this. We'll connect more people. Yeah. So what I'll do, instead of putting up the normal uh, logo for the thumbnail for the episode, I'll put up a picture so you can visualize of a close approximation of this totally uh, not real thing that I created, uh, and that's what we'll work with. So I should stop blabbering now. Hopefully this show sounds okay without the help of hats. Hopefully he is having a wonderful vacation with his lady friend. He doesn't post on social media, so I don't know what his vacation looks like. 
I haven't heard from him. He said he wasn't using data, so I haven't had any calls or texts with him. He's probably still alive, though. He's probably totally still alive. And I'll put it in the show notes, but you can find me on Instagram at thisispotu. And if you have any ideas for a name that's better than the Harbor Lights, you probably do. If you have any vasectomy questions, DM me. I can refer you, refer you to a guy if you're in the city. He's a great guy. And that's about it. Now, it's 2020. It's a new year, so I need a new sign-off phrase. So my new one, it's from the song Juicy by the Notorious B.I.G. And just before I sign off, I will give you a heads up. We will end on Illusions by Cypress Hill. That's who you heard in the intro. And until next time, if you don't know, now you know. Somehow